Hello, and welcome to episode 14 of the Tennis Abstract Podcast. I am Jeff Sackman, and with me as always is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi, Carl. Hi, Jeff. You can always find every episode of the Tennis Abstract Podcast at podcast.tennisabstract.com. You can find Carl on Twitter at Carl Bialik. You can find me on Twitter at Tennis Abstract. And many of the topics we'll be discussing are related to things you can find on the Tennis Abstract site, including a, some Wimbledon draw forecasts and up-to-date uh, ELO forecasts and a couple blog posts on the Tennis Abstract blog that we're probably going to be talking about over the course of this episode. So I hope you do check that out. And let's jump right in. Wimbledon is two days away. We just wrapped up uh, the last warm-up tournaments, especially in Eastbourne. And let's start on the women's side this week, Carl. The winner in Eastbourne was Karolina Pliskova, uh, who's now moved just barely into position as the favorite, according to the bookmakers. And it was a pretty strong draw. Pliskova was there. She beat Caroline Wozniacki in the final. Simona Halep, Angelique Kerber both made it to the quarters and, and lost at that stage. So I was a little surprised, Carl, to see that Pliskova, actually her, her odds of winning Wimbledon bumped up quite a bit. I think she was between 6.5 to 1, 7 to 1 before the final today, and then she's up into the 5.5 to 6 to 1 range after winning today. And that seems like a pretty big bump for beating Caroline Wozniacki in a final that I think she would have been expected by most people to win. Do you think, Carl, that this, this result at Eastbourne tells you a lot about Pliskova's chances on in the Grand Slam this week? Not a ton. I, I don't think if she'd lost in the quarters or semis, I would have thought very differently about her chances. She's clearly one of the favorites. Clearly, there's no enormous favorite. I I do wonder if there's just kind of a quick reaction. Maybe there's some dumb money in the pool for Wimbledon, and the bookies are, are adapting to that. There's a lot of fans who only pay attention around now, and there are a lot of people in Britain who like to bet on sports. So that's one hypothesis that we shouldn't make too much of it. But I I certainly think absent any other obvious choices, she's one of the top favorites, maybe the top favorite or co-favorite with Kvitova. And there's clearly an asterisk around Kvitova. So maybe Pliskova by default. What do you think? Yeah, I, she's definitely in the conversation. And you're right to point out Kvitova's right there too. Uh, it, in the odds just a few hours ago before that Eastbourne final wrapped up, Kvitova was the favorite at 6-1 to one or something. And I don't want to make too much of those numbers. As you point out, there's some there's some smart money and dumb money in the pool. And if the if the line does move too much as, as a response to one result, then maybe that isn't the smartest money talking. On the other hand, one of the challenges of, of projecting grass court results is there's just not that many of them. And... People have been talking about Pliskova as an up-and-coming star for a couple of years now, especially after she made that run at the U.S. Open. She seems like someone who would play very well on grass, but she hasn't made that big breakthrough on grass. And maybe some of that reaction is saying, okay, we know she has the game for it, but some people just aren't that comfortable on the surface. She's showing that she can show up, beat a handful of good players on this surface that's basically identical to that of Wimbledon. So it's just a, a little added confidence that she she isn't going to do anything stupid. I mean, she isn't going to make the betters look stupid for, for losing a match because she's just tripping all the time or something on the grass, just because there isn't that much data to go off of. Um, now, Carl, let's talk about Pliskova first in comparison to Simona Halep and Angelique Kerber. Uh, we talked about this a little bit last week. Uh, Kerber and Halep were neck and neck for number one, and if Halep had 
probably made the final or, or won Eastbourne. She would be number one on Monday. She didn't, so Kerber held on. But Pliskova has massively closed the gap. I think there's less than 200 points separating Kerber, Halep, and Pliskova right now. And when we get to the late rounds of a slam, 200 points is nothing. I mean, that, that's the difference of one round. So given that Pliskova is the favorite, that she has shown that she can play well on a grass court, maybe better than, certainly better than Halep and maybe also better than Kerber, who do you expect to be number one in two weeks' time? Yeah, I think Pliskova is the clear choice of the three of them. Kerber was a finalist at Wimbledon last year, but she was also, in general, playing at a really high level at that stage. She had won the Australian Open. She went on after Wimbledon to have a great uh, summer on hard courts, make it to the final, I think, at the Olympics and, and win silver, and then win the U.S. Open. So I think it's a different Kerber. It's not so much the surface that matters this year. It's that Kerber just isn't playing like a top 10 player. And Halep, as you say, well, I think she did make a Wimbledon semi, perhaps, and also a quarter. She, this isn't, Clay is where she's most comfortable, and she hasn't really done that much this year when she hasn't been playing on Clay. So for her, I think surface is the bigger issue. And with Pliskova, it's steady results, beating who she should be beating all year on every surface, even surprisingly Clay, at least at the French Open, plus grass certainly rewarding her powerful serve and her big ground strokes and maybe not exposing her movement as much. And she also seems to move relatively well on grass relative to other surfaces. So I I think she's easily the favorite of the three, but I don't know if her chances of being number one are as high as 50%, given that she's behind the other two. So if they all reach the same round, let's say she won't, she won't get it. Yeah, it, it's, it's certainly possible that this will all be settled well before the end of the tournament. Uh, there's as we'll get to there are plenty of other women in the draw who we might like even more to win the tournament even beyond Pliskova and Kvitova Uh, and that's something that I touched on a little bit in the preview I wrote for The Economist that actually just went up a few hours before we're recording this Uh, so one of those names it's interesting how how in the tennis punditry world there are takes that kind of become popular become unpopular for reasons that don't have a lot to do with reality and one of those is is just how people are re- thinking about Venus Williams. Because I remember before the French Open, people were super excited about Venus. Like she was coming off that Australian Open final. Um, her sister was taking time off, so now she was it was creeping up the the ranks of the favorites. It seemed like everybody's dark horse take for the for the French Open was Venus Williams, even though she's not as great on clay as she is on other surfaces. Now, a month later, we're on grass where she's had an amazing career, and I don't hear a lot of people talking about her. But in my grass court surface ELO model, she actually comes out as the as the highest rated player of anyone in the field. Better than Pliskova, better than Kvitova. Uh, so she, in, in my projection, which I mean, you can poke holes in, sure, but she's actually the favorite in the tournament. Do you think that's a, a there's a plausible argument to be made there, Carl, that, that Venus is the woman to beat? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a pretty straightforward one, which is she's won this tournament five times, not to mention doubles and Olympic success in doubles at the same venue. And she made the final at the Australian Open. She made, was it the fourth round or the quarters at the French, which for her is quite good. Mm-hmm. And there isn't an obvious other favorite. So we might be splitting hairs here and talking about whether she has an 11% chance and 
Pliskova is 10.5 and Kvitova is 10.3 or, or something. And maybe I'm, I'm lowballing it too much, but with the field this wide open, there are a lot of players who are close to being a favorite. And I think it's clear that she's one of them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now I, I wrote an article at, in the last couple of weeks about how grass court ELOs were surprisingly predictive. Like I had just assumed that because there were so few grass court matches that when you got down to surface specific ratings, grass court ratings wouldn't be as predictive as say clay court ratings because there are three times as many clay court matches or hard court matches because there are six times as many hard court matches. But even though we don't have a lot of data, it turns out that grass court ratings are roughly as predictive as others, which might not be entirely true for Venus. Unlike most players, she doesn't play grass warm-ups anymore. I mean, she hasn't played a warm-up tournament since Eastbourne in 2011. So a, a big chunk of her grass court rating is based on a Venus that really doesn't exist anymore. We're talking about you know, 2012 Wimbledon, 2013 Wimbledon. And it would be a stretch to say that that tells us too much about how she's going to play this week. But there's still something there. I mean, most players don't have a lot more data to go off of than that. And based on that data, we've got a pretty reliable system. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned that we may be looking at too much or waiting too much at the Venus of five or six years ago, but she made the semis last year. And when we think of the other three who made the semis, Serena Williams, her sister who ended up winning is idle now. She's pregnant. And uh, Kerber is, as we say, struggling and Vesnina is really struggling. So of those four, Venus Williams has about as good a chance as any. And more broadly, if you go back over the last four majors, she's been probably the best player other than, I guess you could say Kerber because she won one and, and lost in a final, even though she was pretty bad at the two this year. But, you know, I don't, I don't weight Kerber's chances very highly. And then Serena Williams, who's not playing. So there could be something around majors and around the break that you get between just about every match. You get a day off, which you don't always on tour, that could really work well for Venus Williams, given that she has an autoimmune disorder that can often cause fatigue. Maybe a major format is ideal for her, and all of those things could really add up to her being uh, potentially the favorite here. Yeah, that's definitely true. And keep in mind when we're talking about these surface-specific ELOs, they are weighted 50-50 between the pure surface ELO, which is based just on grass core results, and an overall uh, rating. So half of this rating that's making Venus the favorite is based on her performance over the whole year, which, as you point out, has been really steady and, and maybe better than anyone else in the field, especially at the slams. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention before we got into some other players is, since you mentioned her sister Serena, who of course is not playing, uh, I, when I was running a forecast a couple days ago to, to get a sense of, of how the draw looked, I accidentally forgot to take Serena out. And of course she would be the favorite if she were healthy and, and playing. And it turned out that, just to give you a reference point, no one in the draw, according to my model, has more than a 15% chance of winning the tournament. Like Carl, you were throwing around numbers like 10 or 11%, which might be a little bit low, but not too low. I mean, this is a really wide open field. But compared to that 15%, if Serena entered, this same model would say she had a 60% chance Whoa, of winning the tournament. I was going to guess 30 or 40. 60. 6 zero. 6 zero. Yep. And I've, I've never seen that before in a, a slam forecast. Wow. I mean, there, there's... In, that basically means she's all but guaranteed to win every match until the last couple rounds. And she was, it's, so she did win Wimbledon the last two times, and also the last results we have for her are a win at the Australian Open. But still, I guess, 
I was maybe too taken up by the narrative of she had been the field had been catching up to her because of her her losses at three of the majors or four of the five majors before the Australian. Yeah, and part of the problem is that when the field is catching up with someone, that doesn't necessarily mean that any specific player is. So that might mean in Serena's case that instead of giving her a 99.5% chance of winning most of her matches, it might be a 98% chance. And over the course of seven matches, that adds up a little bit. But it's not like there's there's one player there who you'd give a 50% chance of, of beating Serena. And that's what it takes to knock down those odds. Because even on the men's side, it's, it's more lopsided than these 15% numbers on the women's side. I think I have Djokovic at 33 or 35% and Federer and Murray between 20 and 25%. But even there, it, the model assumes they are going to have to play each other. And most of those guys don't have much better than a 50% chance of beating each other. So they're going to have to play at least a couple of tough matches. And for Serena... It, it, the the draw could very easily break in such a way that she wouldn't have to play maybe more than one player who was much of a threat against her. So maybe she's she's listening at home and thinking she should have entered pregnant or not. She I, I don't have a, a parameter in my model that, that is based on months of pregnancy, but I think with Serena she would have a lot of room there to, to have her rating edged down and still come out as the favorite regardless of her um, present health status. Um, speaking of women taking time off for pregnancy, we also have Victoria Azarenka back. We talked about her a little bit last week. She came back in Majorca two weeks ago, won a really tight match against Riza Ozaki, which is not an overwhelming result, but still nice to get a win. Uh, she lost pretty badly to Anikonia in the next round. So don't really know what to expect from her. Sabine Lisicki reached the quarterfinals, I think, in Majorca. These are two women who've played really well, well at Wimbledon in the past. They're not seated, so they're about the worst kind of floaters in the draw if you're the sort of person who's going to end up having to play them in the early rounds. Carl, what do you what do you think to expect from these two? I mean, it, Azarenka is 50-1 to 1 in the betting odds, so basically seen as a non-factor. I think Lisicki's in the same range. What do you think the chances are that we're going to see them in the second week? That's that's tough. Uh, I you know I think in general at majors you would expect players to be able to play their way into the draw. I've, I've probably said that now in every episode, so we should we should <laughs> drink when I say that. But it, it it is the case for the top top seeds that the first two rounds are guaranteed not to play a top thirty two seed, and often the draw opens up even more than that. So somebody like Kerber or Murray or Djokovic could could find a way to um, to ease their way into the tournament, even if they're not playing at anywhere near their peak when they start. But for for Azarenka, I mean, she's got Bellis in the first round. I mean, that's a case of two players who, if just about anyone else got them in the first round, that would be a bad draw. And both of them are on the verge of being seated. Azarenka is not seated because she was absent for so long that she just doesn't have the ranking to do it. And Bellis is not quite in the top 32 yet, although she certainly seems like she's been playing like top 30 or top 20 this year so consistently on many surfaces. So I I think that's bad luck for both of them and could be Azarenka's biggest obstacle in, in a couple, at least the first couple of rounds. Uh, she really seems like someone who needs more matches. So if she gets through that and then has maybe a lucky draw from there. I could, If she gets to the second week, I think she's going to be one of the favorites. It's just there's a lot of obstacles on the way. Uh, Lisicki 
I don't even know how much time she needs. It just seems like she's a different person when she gets to Wimbledon. I mean, I think those storylines for players can be overrated and like overweighted on one or two really good results, but there's just no questioning that she is a top 10 player at Wimbledon and, and probably like a top 20 on grass period. And then barely a factor anywhere else. It's, it's one of the most extreme cases I can think of. I mean, I haven't run the numbers, but it certainly feels extreme from looking at the raw numbers. So I could see either Lissiki or Azarenka losing really early or going far. It's high variance. Yeah, they they both have kind of tricky draws. I mean, they, they could definitely be worse because, of course, either of them could have landed right next to Pliskova in the first round, for instance. But as you point out, Azarenka plays CC Bellis in the first round. That could be kind of tough. If she wins that, the likely opponent is Elena Vesnina, who has been pretty consistent over the last year, um, definitely someone who will, will make a match out of it. And then after that, the likely opponent is Anastasia Sevastova, who won in Majorca. I mean, not someone I think of as a great grass court player, but she's turned out to be really solid across all surfaces, and she'll definitely make you work. So it's not an easy path. I mean, it, as you point out, Carl, it could open up. Um, Heather Watson's in there too. I can't see Victoria Azarenka losing to Heather Watson. But Lisicki has a similar sort of path. Like she, she drew Anaconia, the the woman who beat Azarenka in the first round. And Konya's a really big hitter, not that different from Lisicki on grass, I would think. So that match is super high variance. I mean, it, it's easy to imagine that one going 6-1, 6-1 in either direction. And then just to get out of that section, Lisicki would have to get through Dominika Sibylkova. Sibylkova's really struggled on grass. She's lost all three matches she's played. But you know, on a good day, Sibylkova will go toe-to-toe with anybody. So it's not an ideal situation for either of them. But as you point out, if they show up in the second week, then that in itself will tell us more about how, how ready they are to really contend at the highest level. And what I found when I, this is also something that we've probably mentioned in the way too many podcasts, but back when Sharapova was coming, coming back, I found that players returning from long layoffs got quite a bit better after the first five matches or so. So you don't expect much from them in their first five matches back, but it, they get a lot closer to their previous level pretty quickly. And both of these two women, Lisicki and Azarenka, are sort of in between those levels. Lisicki has, I think, three matches under her belt. Azarenka just two, although maybe you can count that Ozaki match for two matches on its own. But they're both at that stage where they're still getting their bearings, but by the second week, they will be up to six or seven matches back, and maybe the forecast should change for them at that point if they've made it that far. So... Carl, any other any other matches that stick out to you as particularly interesting early on that we should be watching for? Well, you flagged uh, Svitolina Barty, Barty, and I mean that's those are two young players, one of whom is making a comeback from some years away from tour, Barty, and has looked really good. And Svitolina, who last last we really saw her at a big stage, she was crushing Simona Halep in the quarters at the French Open, and then basically fell apart and and lost the second set in a heartbreaker net cord on set point and tiebreaker and and barely felt like she barely won a point in the third set so uh on paper she should be one of the favorites even though this isn't a good surface for her because she's been so good this year but i wouldn't be surprised to see an upset there yeah, definitely and my model actually has Barty ahead of Spitalina i think it, because it, of grass court 
Because of the grass courts, definitely. I mean, basically because of Barty's uh, run to the final in Birmingham. She beat some good players in route there, and Spitalina's never done too much on, on grass. So I think it's pretty close. I think 56-44 or something like that. But I think Spitalina also has some nagging injuries that she's dealing with. So, yeah, definitely wouldn't be surprised to see a, an upset there. So... Just a, a few other things. We're going to avoid the, the typical pre-slam podcast trap of, of plotting through every section of the draw. Um, we know you can find that elsewhere if that's the sort of thing you're into, but we're going to shame you a little bit for liking it. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the danger zones or some of the other players who are threats. You know, one name that pops out to me is Coco Vandaway, who's really dangerous on grass. She, she actually hasn't done that well this year, but... She's won in her Togenbosch a couple times in the past. Um, Annette Contevite is also in that same section with Vandaway. And she's someone we talked about last week. She won her Togenbosch this year, and I think she's a really promising young player. Is there anyone else, Carl, who, who you see as sort of a dark horse threat in the draw? Uh, well, a surprising wild card went to Bethany Maddox-Sands. And with her net attacking game and a kind of weak section of the draw. Like she, uh, she has Lynette and then Burton's or Kirsty and then apologies if I'm butchering, butchering any pronunciations and Muguruza would be her third round opponent. And she's, uh, she was the finalist here in 2015, but she has been really struggling this year. So I, I think that that draw could open up for Maddox Sands and, and she's had some good runs this year in singles in addition to being the best doubles player in the world. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't even realize she had gotten that wild card. I love watching her play, and when she's playing well, she's one of the most entertaining women on the tour, and as of course, she's a, a fantastic doubles player as well, so it's great to see her sticking with a singles game and having some success there as well. And it is interesting that I've gotten so used to ragging on American tennis over the last few years, because on, on the men's side, there's been so many just boring one-dimensional players, but... American women's tennis seems like it's going through a kind of a renaissance. We mentioned Bellis earlier, who's so far ahead of where anyone would have expected her to be even a year ago, pushing into the top 40. Lauren Davis is near a new career high. She's one of my favorite players to watch as well. I think she's in the top 30. Um, Sloane Stevens is back. We haven't seen her for a while. Um, and I don't know if she's ready to be a threat this week, but she's had some great runs at slams in the past. And, Vandaway and Maddox Sands, as you point out, um, really an interesting future for American tennis, even when Serena and Venus do finally hang it up. Um, yeah, and interestingly, other- Stevens and um, Davis both have American opponents in the first round. So Davis is is got Varvara Levchenko, and Stevens is playing Allison Risk Risky Risk. It's, Risk, I think it was risky to to attempt her name. And uh, who I think has been good on grass in the past, right? You know, I don't know. Okay. I have to. I have to look. That's that up. my memory. So anyway, yeah, there's there's some there are enough American women in the draw that there are some interesting all American matches. And those of us who have followed American tennis for a long time through some of the leaner years know that that is that is the one way to guarantee some American women in the second or third round. <laughs> it's certainly it's been just, the men's just, route many times. Yeah, just make sure they they play each other and. You're guaranteed a couple players in later rounds. Um, you know, it's funny because if you look at some of the old slam draws, especially in Australia, but somewhat in the U.S., players from that country made up such a large chunk of the draw 
that they would just sort of be guaranteed players in the later rounds from that. But yeah, it was particularly striking in some of the Australian Opens when a lot of players didn't make the trip and you even had some 32-player draws and there would be maybe more than half who were Australian. Yeah, it almost looked like some 250s do nowadays, like those 250s in France where it's like 14 Frenchmen and 18 everybody else. Uh, or Newport, I guess, is, is kind of like that, or Houston as well. The American 250s tend to be very heavily U.S. players. Um, we also have players... uh, Gorgie Cornet is interesting, and Madison okay. Keys is playing, in that, and she would play the winner of that if she gets through Hibino in the first round. And, again, like with Stevens, Madison Keys is coming back from some injury problems, so I'm not sure what to expect from her from this week, but there's... There's a really tantalizing third rounder, I think it would be, between Madison Keys and Yelena Ostapenko. Uh, that's there would not be many long rallies in that match. Yeah, that that I'm not sure if we're going to get to talking about the aggression index or aggression score and some of the the work I've done there, but that might break some records for aggression score. There would not be a lot of rallies, period, long or otherwise. Um. And they do have a fairly open section because the winner of that match would face, well, the winner of Svitolina's section, I guess, in the fourth round. And as we discussed, that may well not be Alina Svitolina. So the winner there could have a nice path at least to the quarters. But the most the most tempting section, I think, and, and really in general, there's a, there's a lot of fascinating early matches. Uh, I, I pointed out in that Economist preview that a lot of the most interesting, consequential, entertaining matches of the draw might be in the first week because the, because of these players returning, because of some players who aren't that good on grass at the top of the rankings these days. The, the, the seedings aren't that reflective of what we would expect from this tournament. I mean, Venus is outside of the top eight. Petra's outside of the top eight. Uh, a lot of the players we've been talking about aren't even seeded. So one potential fourth-round match is Kvitova, who, as we've discussed, is one of the favorites, and Joanna Conta, who is also in that conversation. Um, assuming they both make it, what do you what would you expect, Carl, from, from that match? We've seen greatness from Petra. We've seen Conta win quite a few matches on grass as well. But I think the real test for, for Kvitova is to finally play a really top player on grass. She didn't have to play any top ten opponents to get through Birmingham. So... How do you think she would fare uh, playing a, a first match against a really elite, hard or grass court opponent in Joanna Conta? I would take Petra. If she got there, it would say something about her form, and I also have my doubts about Conta on grass. Really? Okay. I mean, it's probably it's it's a good surface for her, but uh, yeah, I don't I don't see her as one of the top favorites. Maybe I'm overweighting some of her disappointing recent results, but uh, I I also think the the sort of media frenzy, especially if Murray disappoints and she is the top 10 Brit who's there, um, that at, at least the first time experiencing it at that level, I mean, this is really her first year where you could say she's a Wimbledon favorite going into the tournament. Uh, I, I think it'll be tough to handle. It's it's pretty overwhelming, the, the attention that the British press pays to Brits at Wimbledon. That is definitely true. And there is some injury concern with Conta. She had a pretty nasty fall in her last match in Eastbourne. Uh, so she, she pulled out of Eastbourne with that spine injury. So it was probably precautionary. And players aren't going to take any risks with things like that the week before Grand Slam, especially one as big as Wimbledon is for Conta. But it is something to watch. And 
another concern for Conta, since you mentioned some of her disappointments on grass, is that her potential second-round opponent, I think, is Donna Vekic, who she lost to in the Nottingham final a couple weeks ago. So you say that, that we'll know something about Petra if she gets to that match, but Conta will have to step up a little bit to get to that match herself. Yeah, Vekic so makes that, the second round. Vekic is another <laughs> high-variance player. Yeah, and we probably should have just said that at the beginning of this discussion, that whenever we're talking about any matchup after the first round, it just comes with a giant grain of salt, because this this draw is just so unpredictable. And for me, that makes it absolutely fascinating. I'm, I'm as excited about the state of women's tennis right now as I have been for a long time. There's so many moving parts, so many things to watch for, even if we have no idea who's going to be there come a week from Thursday when, when we're playing the semifinals. And it also means that there are good matches sprinkled throughout the two weeks, not that we have to wait till the last four or five days to get the great matches. Yeah, absolutely. There's going to be some, some chances for highlights every single day of the tournament. So let's save our, our, our climactic predictions for the very end, but let's switch over to the men now. Um, we started talking about the women with Carolina Pliskova's Eastbourne title and what that meant for her chances at Wimbledon. On the men's side, no big surprise, but kind of reassuringly, Novak Djokovic won that title. He beat Gail Malfi's today. Again, really not a shock there at all. Novak's won 14 matches against, against Monfils now, and seems like none of them have been very close. But on the other hand, Men usually don't, or the the top men usually don't play tournaments the week before a slam. Um, I, I haven't checked this, but someone on Twitter said that no one has won a slam after winning a tournament the week before in 19 years, which is a, a really, really heavy selection by a sort of stat because, of course, most of the top men don't play those tournaments. So the sort of men who win the week before, they wouldn't be contenders anyway. But still, it's a, it's a dramatic number and one that Novak is not necessarily expected to turn around this week. The other so, potential selection bias there is I'd want to... The, the relevance that would be no one has won slam after playing a final the week before. Like, did they choose it because somebody lost in the final and then won a slam? Because you're still playing as late that week before. I mean, we're just talking about usually there's, I guess there there could be two warm-ups, but there would only be one where a top player would consider playing. So we're talking about at most, you know, 76 players and probably way fewer because there are way fewer of Djokovic's caliber who play. So I'm just wondering if there's some selection there too. That always makes me suspicious with those stats. What I like about what you do in your studies is, so here's a potential follow-up, do players underperform who play the week before relative to what we'd expect them to do? Yeah, and who knows? I mean, as, as we've talked, I think we talked about this a little bit going into the French Open because Vavrinka won in Geneva the week before, I believe, is that for top players, it doesn't really seem like it should make too much of a difference. They've, they've got a day off between matches. Usually their first few rounds at a slam aren't going to be that hard. They're not going to spend a ton of time on court. So it shouldn't affect matters, but on the other hand, you have to trust the practitioners to know what they're doing. So there's a reason why these guys don't play the tournaments the week before. I mean, part of it is probably just the the motivation and the incentives at stake because almost all these tournaments are 250, so there's not really much reason to play. But they have voted with their feet. Like Top four guys are almost never in these tournaments the week before. So seems like there's something there. I'm not sure. But... We've been talking about Djokovic, 
pretty steadily through the 14 episodes of this podcast. Um, so many question marks around his level. He's got Agassi with him again this week at Wimbledon. He's got Mario Ancic on his team now as well. So he has some, maybe some financial planning help from Columbia Business School in addition to Ancic's um, tennis prowess. So... What do, you, do you think that this is the tournament where Djokovic finally starts playing like an elite again after some, some pretty middling performances all year? I would not be surprised. I mean, I, I've kind of been expecting it at almost every tournament. And it's also part of what's been weird about him is the variation from match to match. Like there were flashes in tournaments this year where he looked like he could be the old Djokovic. I think Rome was an example where going into that final, there was a lot of oh, Djokovic is back. He just destroyed Dominique Team, who'd been the second best player on clay to that point. And, you know, what's going to stop him now? And then Zverev just crushed him. And then Djokovic looked good going into his quarterfinal against Team at the French Open. And I think if he'd won that, there would we would have heard a lot more of Djokovic might be back. And Team crushed him. So it's it's going to be tricky to say even a week in if he's still in the draw, which I expect he will be. It just seems like there's more of that variation from match to match. And I've heard people say in the past that that comes more later in a career that older guys and older women too, for that matter, can can show flashes of their greatness at any point and maybe for a whole match, but that it becomes harder to sustain it for seven matches. I don't know if that's the case. Maybe it's just that he was an amazing outlier during his run of 12 majors and four in a row, and that this is this is more of a reasonable level to expect. But I just don't know what to make of it. Even in Eastbourne, even though he, he won most of his matches, maybe all of them pretty comfortably, he had moments where he looked pretty shaky, and then he would show flashes, and the commentators would say, oh, Novak's back, he's back at his peak level. But peak level means sustaining it for a whole tournament and maybe for a whole season, and I'm not convinced he's there yet. Well, that's really what's been so amazing about Djokovic over the years is, yeah, he, he has a bad match now and then, but peak Djokovic was, he seemed just unperturbable, unbeatable, like, that it, some of the moments where he did seem to be bothered or off balance, they got so much press because they were so out of character. I mean, we're used to seeing Murray freak out over all sorts of crazy things and, and berate himself to no end. But Djokovic was just so solid, so consistently for so long. And yeah, that's, that's what has gone away. It's interesting what you, what you say about the, the belief that as players get older, they have a harder time playing at their, at, at their level consistently. Um, I hadn't heard it put that way. It's sort of a related thing that I've I've heard over the years is a conventional wisdom belief that as players get older, they perform less well in the clutch, whether that shows up as not converting as many break points or that sort of thing. There was a lot of talk about Federer and his problems with break points a few years ago. And it could be that those are just two sides of the same coin. Those are just different ways of, of, of making sense of seeing the same thing. And I'd want to see more more studies, any studies to, to to determine that, to see if there's really something there. Because it's so difficult to detect something like consistency over time just with the naked eye. Uh, but that would be interesting. And, and for someone like Djokovic, that would strip away of some of what has made him so strong when he was at his peak. Um, you know, I've heard that clutch thing too. And the way I've heard it stated is 
that when you're young, you have no memories of disappointments to hold you back and you can just swing freely and, and believe. And that when you're older, you have had times when you've disappointed in the clutch and that those memories can weigh on you. And again, I agree, figuring out a way to, to test this empirically would be quite tough, but there's at least a story there that makes some sense to me. Yeah, I, maybe it's just my natural skepticism to all such stories, but it seems like you could just as easily tell the opposite story. Oh, completely. You know, the opposite assumption that, you know, the older you get, especially someone like Djokovic, he's been in all these situations before, he's he's weathered all kinds of difficulties and come out on top in the end. So I think that the exact opposite story is just as plausible as the, the one you outlined. Yeah, and I think people in general will say, and this comes up all the time in team sports, the experience is so important in the big moment. So this probably just appeals to me because it's the other side, but it could well be overcorrecting. Yeah. Um, now, looking at Djokovic's draw, it, it, there's no real danger for the first couple rounds. But what seems like, I don't know how many times this happened in the last year or two to one Martin Del Potro, Djokovic and Del Potro could face off in the third round, which, as usual, horrible luck for Del Potro. Not great luck for Djokovic since... Djokovic has lost to Delpo in high-profile, important matches before. Um, and then even after that, if he gets through Del Potro, he could face Gail Mulfies in the fourth round. That's a, a cakewalk to Djokovic, no matter what his level, it seems. But also lurking there is Feliciano Lopez, who we, we discussed last week, had some really clutch play to, to win the final in Queens Club over Marin Cilic. Seemed like he could be a dangerous player. And on grass, where Lopez really excels... If Djokovic doesn't show up at 100%, then Lopez is someone who could knock him out. It's, it's easy to see that happening. Yeah, I Lopez has been so good over the years on grass, and it would be really exciting to see that matchup. Lopez is in a funny little section of the draw where he also has, as his first-round opponent, the runner-up in Antalya this, this past week. And then if he gets through that, could get in the second round the winner, Sugita. So a uh, few, few guys who have had good grass warm-ups. Manorino in particular... Being a lefty with a funky game, probably even funkier than Lopez's, that, that, that'll be a fun one to watch. Yeah, and I am interested to, to see how Sugita does because he's he's really come out of nowhere. I mean, a few months ago, I don't think very many fans even knew who he was. I mean, I, I couldn't tell you much about him even now. But he had a surprise run, I think it was in Barcelona, and this is someone who's had basically never won a tour-level match on clay. I think he had won one in some weird circumstance. And he's but, 28 years old. It's not like a young up-and-comer, right? Yeah, exactly. He, he, we should have seen something by now. Then he he won the, the grass court challenger in Cerbaton. Um, now he's won Antalya, which I saw a tweet from the, the ATP media people saying Suida was the first player to ever win a grass court title and a, a grass court challenger title in the same season, which is... A little bit funny because Antalya's draw looked a little bit like a challenger itself, so wasn't exactly like he went and won Wimbledon, but still, I mean, pretty impressive accomplishment. He's got a lot of momentum going in here, and I, I have a hard time seeing him get past Lopez on a surface that Lopez is so good on, but it'll certainly be something, someone to watch. I mean, you have to wonder how long he can ride this momentum and just how good he is on grass against more difficult opponents than he had to face in Antalya. Um... Before we talk about the other top players, I have to just pause for a moment about Antalya, which has got to be one of the weirdest additions to the ATP calendar. I mean, grass courts have typically been such a traditional, old-school part of the the season. I mean, 
the Hollet tournament has been around forever. Hartogenbosch has been around forever. All these, uh, all these British tournaments. I mean, it seems like the, the calendar changes a little bit every year, but it's always Birmingham and Eastbourne and Queens Club and Nottingham and Surbiton for the challengers. So it's pretty predictable. And then out of nowhere, with this extra week in the calendar, we have a grass court tournament in Turkey, which is just super weird. Um, and it seems like most of the players were a little surprised by that too, which is why most of them didn't go. I mean, Dominic Team was the one high-profile player who went, and then he lost to an, an Indian player ranked outside of the top 200 in his first match. So it seems like Team wasn't particularly motivated. He got um, routed, by the way. He did, indeed. So he, he really wanted to get out of Turkey, I guess. <laughs> uh, but, Carl, do you think this is just sort of a, a growing pains issue with this extra week in the grass calendar, or is this, is this just a bad scheduling decision from the ATP to put a tournament the week before Wimbledon in Turkey? It does feel like a bad scheduling decision. I'm all for growing the game and tournaments in Turkey, and from what I saw, it looked like a nice venue and good courts, and there were some good matches, but it just doesn't make a lot of sense. In fact, I was thinking if you want to add another grass tournament, maybe probably not the week before players have to be in the UK because that just doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, I would I would love to see one in India because there, there's such a tradition of fast court, grass court tennis in India. You mentioned the guy who knocked out team, Ram Kumar Ramanathan, who made it through qualies and he actually won his first match in a double bagel and then kind of ran through his first two matches in the main draw too and, and got to, including team, and then got to seven to it was six all in the third set tiebreak against Baghdadis before he fell. And Baghdadis is actually a really good grass court player who had to retire in a semi down a set and a break to Sugita. Um, so it, it would be interesting to see an Indian tournament on grass. I think it would be very popular. I think it would be fun to see wild cards for like Bopana to play the singles or at least play the singles qualifying. Uh, I don't know that you'd have that many more players, but it it would it would be sort of a natural place to put it. And if we're traveling as far away as Turkey, it's not that big a difference to go to India. But again, not the week before a major in the UK just doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, it, it it seems to be a symptom of the fact that the ATP kind of has to take what it can get, and it, it devolves a lot of power to the tournaments themselves, because it, it would make a lot more sense to me if you're going to have a grass court tournament somewhere as far flung as Turkey, to make it that first week after Roland Garros, because most players aren't playing the, the second week of the Grand Slam, so they would have time to travel there. Maybe you could add a grass court challenger in Turkey as well the week before, since Turkey has backed a huge number of lower-level tournaments, including a, a men's futures almost every week of the year. So the opportunity is probably there, and it might attract a few more players, because players are generally pretty smart about optimizing their schedules. So maybe not the first year, but in the second or third year, players are going to realize, it, yes, it's in Turkey, yeah, it might feel kind of weird or unfamiliar, but at the same time, there's just as many points available at a, 200, at a 250 in Turkey as there are at a 250 in the Netherlands or a 250 in Eastbourne. So players will go where the points are, as long as it's not going to jeopardize where the real points are at Wimbledon. And I think that's what we saw this past week. So let's go back to the top guys. And before we get to Roger Federer, who we discussed at length last week, let's talk about Murray and Nadal. 
we basically haven't seen either one of them since the French Open. Murray played that one match at Queen's Club, losing to Jordan Thompson, breaking his 136-match streak of breaking serve at least once, and Murray pulled out of an exhibition uh, this week, so he's been seen hobbling around on the court with a hit problem, apparently hitting well, but hobbling between points. What do you expect Which is not that different from a healthy Murray. <laughs> That's true. That's a fair point. What do you expect from these two guys since we have so little grass court information to go on? I think they both have pretty good draws. I I do look forward to the potential for a Dustin Brown, Andy Murray second round, but even a match like that probably won't make Murray move that much because the points will be short. He might have to chase a lot of weird balls that, you know, Brown will give him all sorts of uh, different spin and, and placements, but I, I think in general he's pretty comfortable for the first few rounds. Uh, you know, his his first seeded opponent potentially is Fabio Fanini, who's not a big threat on grass. You know, he could run into Kyrgios or Tsonga after that, and then it would get complicated. But that first week is an opportunity. I'm not going to say to play his way into form, <laughs> but it is an opportunity potentially to not be at peak strength, but still get through and then give his his body time to heal. Murray does have the remarkable potential for a number one player to make matches get complicated. So, you know, he could be sunk by an early five-setter. And you did that study during the French about the the toll that it takes on players if they do have to go long early in majors. But the the draw certainly gives him a chance to, to play his way into it. Uh, do you want Rafa now too, or do you want to stick to Murray first? Well, one name you didn't mention, Carl, is, is the potential for Nick Kyrgios in Murray's section. Oh, I thought I said uh, Kyrgios or Sanga in the fourth round as a potential oh, for maybe, it. Maybe you did. My my office chair just started randomly sinking, so I'm a bit distracted <laughs> from from my environment sort of growing around me. So Kyrgios is in the mix, and I think... Oh, and I was I wrong about you, Sanga. It's Pui, yeah. So... Kyrgios is a major factor here, I think. I mean, he's been iffy for the last couple months, and he seemed to to be out of sorts because he was dealing with the death of his grandfather, and he's he's always been a very inconsistent, dare I say, mercurial, like everyone seems to say about Kyrgios' player. Uh, but this should be a tournament that he would excel at. He, he's beaten these guys before. Um, I think that's a really dangerous matchup, and if I were Murray... It, I I would be pretty happy with the draw, except for that. I mean, that's the one guy I wouldn't want to see in my quarter, and Murray is the one who stuck with him. And it's also worth mentioning that that is that is Stan's quarter as well. Um, I've, I I don't remember, remember whether we mentioned on the podcast last week, but Vavrinka has been historically pretty bad on grass courts, but he does step it up at the slams. He does need Wimbledon to complete his career slam. And Carl, do you think there's the potential there for Vavrinka to make a run, even though he's never shown anything on grass suggesting that he could? I certainly think there's potential. Uh, he's He made, I know, a quarter against Federer and won a set. Uh, I think he also got a quarter against Gasquet, and it was a pretty good match. So... I, Stan does seem lately to be really bringing his best at the majors. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see him crash and burn early, but sometimes when he's lost early at Wimbledon, it's been because he's he's had a pretty lousy 
early draw. Like he's gotten Leighton Hewitt early at a time when Hewitt was still good enough to be really good on grass. And he's gotten Del Potro early. So I don't see a threat like that early. It would be fun to see Vavrinka Haas and see those one-handed backhands in the second round. But notwithstanding Haas's upset of Federer and Stuttgart, he's really hasn't won many matches this year. And I wouldn't be surprised if he even lost to Bemelmans in the first round. So I, I don't expect him to give Avrinka much trouble, in which case, yeah, I mean, there isn't that much that's all that scary for Vavrinka early in the tournament. Uh, Tsonga, Vavrinka, if that were a fourth rounder, I'd, I'd go with Tsonga, but a lot has to happen. Also lurking in that section is none other than the guy who ended Djokovic's major winning streak, Sam Querrey, and he has a relatively comfortable draw until Tsonga in the third round. So that could be a good match, too. You'll see a lot of aces and short rallies in that one if it happens. Yeah, Query's another name you wouldn't want to see in your quarter. And uh, as you point out, he he did knock out Djokovic last year. So definitely dangerous on the surface. And speaking of guys dangerous on the surface, let's use that as our segue to Nadal. And Rafa's not who I'm referring to. But Rafa could face Ivo Karlovic, he could face Gilles Muller, uh, he could face Karen Kachanov, who hasn't played much on grass in his career, but had some success this season. Uh, how do you see Rafa faring in that section filled with so many dangerous grass quarters? Yeah, I didn't see a lot of danger there. I do think Muller could be fun if he gets there, but he breaks serve so infrequently like Karlovic that they're they're both at risk in any match just from getting into a lot of tie breaks. I think Nadal and Muller had a very fun Wimbledon match years ago uh, where maybe Nadal won every set in a tiebreaker, but it was very close throughout. I, I think the, the, the word on, on Rafa, partly from research done by a friend of ours, Suleiman Ajaz, at Wimbledon is that if he can make it through the first week, he's a real threat. And when I saw his draw, I thought he had a pretty good chance to make it through the first week. And what happens in the second week with Rafa at Wimbledon is something that happens pretty much nowhere else with no other top player, which is he plays as well or better in the second week, just in terms of his raw dominance of opponents than he does in the first week. And some of that the story that feels most comfortable to tell is that not so much he gets comfortable on grass, but that the court stops being a grass court. And everyone's seen the, the images of how the grass court changes during Wimbledon. And by about a week in, there's so much grass that's worn down and gone, and it becomes sort of a clay-grass hybrid. And that seems to really suit Nadal in terms of both the movement and the bounce. So I think this is a good draw for him to to accomplish that we just don't know what his physical condition is it could be that any match is tough for him if he's not feeling 100 percent. i think he lost two practice sets to dimitrov easily he lost a an exhibition match easily i don't put too much on that but if it does mean that he's not physically all there then he could certainly no one would really be surprised or blame him if, if he just loses early or withdraws after his incredible and incredibly exhausting clay court run and wanting to be ready for the summer hardcourt season. Yeah, and as you point out there, it wouldn't be surprising just to see him withdraw. I mean, he, he has never been that shy about his, citing his health and giving himself more time to rest, and he knows this isn't his strongest surface. He, he realizes he's not 100% ready. So depending on, especially depending on how he looks at this section, whether he sees it as, as dangerous as I do or as not so dangerous as you see it, that might influence his decision as well. I mean, he, he doesn't have 
the toughest section in terms of big names, so he might want to just give it a few matches and see how he feels, see if he can play his way into it, and maybe if the, the grass can meet him halfway. But, but yeah, wouldn't it, of the four guys, it seems like it, it, it's easy to imagine him crashing out early, whether because he, he loses or, or just pulls out entirely. So inadvertently, Jeff, we seem to be going through this. Yeah, yeah. I, I was just wondering, do you think that players do that tactically, like that they they think they might withdraw, but figure I might as well see the draw and see how it looks before deciding? I, I'm not saying necessarily Rafa is doing that or has done it, but it seems like a pretty logical move if you're on the fence. But I, I'm I'm curious if it happens, and also what what sort of system is in place to disincentivize players from doing that. Well, I don't think there's any system to disincentivize players from almost any shenanigans like that. I mean, besides sort of public shaming, players have so much flexibility in terms of citing injury causes for withdrawals that every player has some nagging injury. And it's like what you see with players pulling out of tournaments after they win something. Like Petra pulled out of Eastbourne, and I forget what she cited. And I mean, I'm sure she needed the rest, but... She wasn't really injured. She didn't really need to pull out of Eastbourne. And it's impossible to know from our vantage point whether players are injured enough that they couldn't play, they're injured enough that they wouldn't play their best, or whether it's just that they want to take some time off or they see that their draw is difficult. But I don't even know how you would construct a system that would really test that. Even even if you did have 100% independent doctors assessing players then the tour itself wouldn't want to, to force people on court when they didn't want to be there. I mean, especially since the tour is partly run by the players themselves and they have their own incentives that they'd like to keep in place. But I don't know. I mean, during tournaments, withdrawals happen really, really rarely. I think it gets overstated how, how much players withdraw in once a tournament has begun. I mean, it, it, it seems like such a, a big step and it will often make a lot of press because reporters have to write about something uh, when there's no match to cover. But there are quite a lot of times where players pull out right before the tournament starts. I mean, they've shown up, they're practicing, and maybe after the draw comes out, they decide they're not good enough to play. And I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if, if players do make that call based on who they're expecting to play. But it's impossible to know. I'm sure I'm sure it happens sometimes, maybe not as much as, as some fans think it does. It's really easy to, to be sort of a... a a small-scale conspiracy theorist about things like that. I think Simona Halep gets gets a lot of those mini conspiracy theories told about her. She she's done it quite a bit, pulling out of a tournament after the draw is constructed. Um, but I mean, it's I certainly don't see it as a big problem. I, mean, I, don't, I don't want players to be on court if they don't think they should be on court. Yeah, and there's certainly an incentive for tournaments to want players who genuinely want some time to see how they're feeling hitting, see how, how it, their body is healing as the tournament approaches. They want a player like Rafa to have the flexibility to decide at the last minute because otherwise maybe he would have withdrawn earlier and that would not be good for Wimbledon. And it does help that you have all the lucky losers or the potentially lucky losers from qualifying sticking around. So the people who take their place are they're maybe not as deserving as that last person on the entry list who didn't make the cut. But they won two qualifying matches. They came close to qualifying, and so it doesn't feel so bad for them to take a spot, although it does create some shenanigans in the draw. Like if, if Rafa had pulled out before, then Vavrinka would have had his own quarter, not be in Murray's quarter. So so that, that is, that is the, the downside is that you could have a pretty wide-open quarter. 
before, I'm not 100% sure about the rules on this, before any matches are played, wouldn't they move Vavrinka into that quarter? I don't think once the draw is set. I know there are times that they'll do that once the draw is set. I mean, it even happened a couple weeks ago in Birmingham, I think. Um, huh. But I, we'll, have to, we'll have to clarify that. Yeah, later. maybe it's different also on tour and at slams. That could be. I mean, a, a lot of times that we hear about this when lucky losers get really lucky is at some of the Masters when it's like a 56 draw or something. So the top eight players have buys, and a top eight player will pull out in the middle of the first round or after the first round is complete. So a lucky loser not only gets the position in the draw of the top eight player effectively taking over the seed, but they also get the buy, which is particularly ridiculous. But I, I do think, we'll have to check on that. I do think that if Nadal pulled out while we were recording this on Saturday, I think Vavrink would move into that quarter, but I could be wrong. Something we should probably know. It is kind so, of tough for the player who was expecting to play Vavrinka, and Vavrinka was expecting to play, to play that player to suddenly be told, oh, got a different opponent because of the pullout. That is true. Um, so we covered the Murray quarter. That's the top quarter. We are inadvertently going through these in order. Nadal was the second quarter, and we have yet to talk about Roger Federer. Of course, we've been talking about him a lot the last couple weeks through the grass season, but he is the presumptive favorite. Um, he has been since pretty much since Murray's upset loss. Uh, I think at right at the French Open, Murray was just barely the favorite, according to the bookmakers, but he's he's lost that by a pretty wide margin now. So Federer is the favorite, and it, it feels to me like he's not playing like an overwhelming, or he's playing well, but his, his record has enough gaps in it, and of course he's 35, that... He he doesn't seem like an overwhelming Wimbledon favorite. It's more a matter of it's just tough to point at anyone else. I mean, Carl, do you think that, that Fed deserves that status going into the tournament as the favorite? I do. I think it's a small margin, but I think it would be hard to make a case for any other player. I mean, Murray, if he had won a round or two at Queens and seemed healthy, there'd be a good case because he won this tournament last year and has been so good on grass and had a good run at the French. But... Yeah, you toss that out. We've already talked about Djokovic. Rafa, we weren't even, we're still not sure, I guess, if he's playing. So who are you left with at that point? I mean, Vavrinka with his troubles on the surface, it, it's it's kind of by default Federer. It does feel slightly just like there should be a rule that you just don't make someone who's turning 36 next month the favorite. But hey, he won the Australian. He's 24-2 and two this year. He won Halle. Uh yeah, it's it's the simplest case. Oh, and he's also won this tournament seven times and probably plays best on grass. Yeah, I I, I agree with all those points. It's it's tough to to make the case for anyone else. It's it's tough to make a a quick and an easy case against Federer. Really, the only case is, as we say, he's old. Players generally don't win slams this old, even though he did it five months ago, and he has had this really dominating season, but. It doesn't stand up under scrutiny as a historically great season. Even though 24 and 2 sounds amazing, of course he, he skipped clay. He probably wouldn't have won all those matches on clay. He hasn't played a lot of top opponents. I mean, he's only played, I think, three different top 10 players all year. Three of those are Nadal, and of course they all came on hard courts. So a good surface for Roger, not as good a surface for Nadal. So it could have been harder for Roger. I mean, if, if Djokovic or Murray had continued their form from last season, I think we'd be having a very different conversation right now, and we'd be talking about Federer more like the way we've talked about him the last few years, as sort of a 
he's a factor, it would be great to see him win, but nobody really expects him to win. But now it just sort of defaults to him because there's, as you point out, there, there's, there's no case to be made really for anybody else. It's also worth remembering, I mean, as good as he's been this year, he made the finals in 2014 and 2015, came close in both those finals. It's, it felt closer in 2014, although he won a set in both. No, sorry, 2014 was the five-setter where he really came close, and then 2015 he won a set against Djokovic. And then last year, having played very few matches, not looking great coming into the tournament, he was really close to beating Raonic in four sets, and certainly you know, was in a fifth set with Raonic and had a shot. And I think you know, if he hadn't been injured, it's not clear if he was injured already in that match or the extent of it, but if he had gone on to play the final in reasonable health, I think he would have had a good chance against Murray, having dominated him in so many of their recent matches. So he's he's not far from having been in the last three Wimbledon finals and maybe even having won one of them. That's true. I mean, he he's he, he hasn't had a bad Wimbledon really in so twenty thirteen Stakowski, but yes, other than that. well, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Stakowski was playing great that day. I mean, yes, would have beaten anybody. Yeah, would have beaten anybody. So. Okay, let let's recap here. Let's start with the men since we're 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 talking about the men. Carl, if you had to pick your your finals, are you going with Fed as your favorite and if so, who's he going to beat in the final? Yeah, I'm going with Fed and I guess Murray. Yeah, Fed or Murray in the final with with very little confidence on on either. How about you? All right. I'll go uh, I'm really close to saying Murray, and this is a, this is a really tough thing for me because my my model says some things that don't make sense to me at all. I mean, my model still loves Djokovic, and it's it's really tough to pick Djokovic. But I'll go with Fed, and I just don't want to pick Murray, so I'll put Chilich as the the loser in the final. It's a good pick. We haven't talked about him, but he was within a point of making that semi against Ronich last year and knocking out Federer, and he probably overall outplayed Lopez in that Queens final we talked about last week and looked good in, on clay. Yeah, Chilich is definitely a factor here. I, I'd probably put him ahead of Vavrinka in chances to win. Yeah, I, I definitely would too. I think my model even agrees with us there. It's really, really bearish on Vavrinka, so it wouldn't take much. But Chilich might be the first guy in Rafa's draw who you can see honestly beating him, I mean, unrelated to maybe Rafa being injured or unmotivated. Um it's easy to see on a grass court Chilich having a good day and and legit beating him like four 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 or something. Yep. Um, so that's my pick, Fed over Chilich in the final. Who's your who's your dark horse pick? Let's say outside of the top sixteen, who do you think is the biggest factor on the men's side? Curios mm. is outside the top sixteen, right? I think he's around twenty. He is. Yeah. So I. Th- I think it's curious, although you can make a case for Delpo, but just Delpo getting Djokovic so early, I, I would favor Djokovic in that match. So, yeah, I think curious. Okay, I'm going to go against type here, and obviously Kyrgios is, is a strong choice. I've already highlighted him, so so I agree with you, but for the sake of another opinion, we'll throw out Jack Sock. He's number 17. Hey, yeah. has a has a... A winnable section in the first seed he'll play is Alexander Zverev, who actually had his own um, injury scare today in practice. So he's in a little bit of doubt. Uh, could play Ronich in the quarters, it looks like. So, or 
the round of the round of sixteen rather. So, I mean, it, it would be tough to get there, but for for someone outside the top sixteen, I think I think Sock has a, a nice chance. Do you know why he hasn't played on grass this season? I I thought there was some injury scare with him. I don't know. I don't remember hearing anything about it. He has not actually won a set since the Rome round of thirty two. Well, that makes my choice seem a little bit less well-informed. Well, Curios has had some injury problems, too, so you can it's defensible. So I'll stick with it. My, <laughs> model, gi- my model gives him a whopping 0.0% chance of winning the tournament, 0.8% chance of reaching the semifinal. So I said dark horse. I'm giving you a dark horse. It's It's so dark I can't see it. I like it. Exactly. So let's switch back to the women. Who Who are your finalists on the women's side all right so now we've been talking about the men so long uh i'm trying i think that pliskova and petra are on opposite sides of the draw do i have that right they are so i think despite what i said about venus williams i'm going to go with those two we didn't actually mention that venus williams is facing some legal difficulties now based on a difficult personal situation where she was involved in a fatal car crash a few weeks ago she was not the one who died, obviously. So I don't know what effect that will have on her, but I would I would have to imagine it, it won't be a good one if it has any effect on her. Uh, it's hard to pick against her, but with Kvitova being in that half and just feeling, and, and I can't tell how much I'm picking with my heart, but the numbers are good enough on Kvitova that I feel okay saying uh, Kvitova and Pliskova. What about you? Yeah, that's a, a solid pick. The the betting market agrees with you, so of course I can't. I with, <laughs> Thanks for letting me go would, first. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, if if I go strictly with my model, and it, actually I should probably get it updated with Eastbourne because Pliskova might might tick up a little bit after winning those matches, but um, the model still likes Kerber quite a bit. It's it's gotten less optimistic about her through, through her struggles this year, but of course with grass court she hasn't played that much on the surface, so it hasn't changed that much from where she stood a year ago. So if we go straight with the numbers, we end up with a Kerber Venus final, and really hard time seeing that one. But rematch of the semis last year—it's certainly possible. It's certainly possible. If we go if we go with the heart, we get Halep Contavite. So let's go with that. I'm going for a, <laughs> A final between Simona Halep and Annette Contevite. And that pretty much gives away my dark horse. Is I don't think Contevite is even seated. So she's comfortably outside the top 16. Who is, who is your dark horse looking in this draw? All right. I need to look at the seeds to, uh, to remind myself. I guess it would have been smarter if I'd actually had the seeds up. Um, oh, man. Wimbledon's making this tough on me. I thought they used to have this sort of, you know, you, you see all the seated players in a, in a nice bunch. Um, hmm. I mean, a lot of these, a lot of these players in, in that sort of next batch are are not really grass quarters, so it's hard to pick them. Uh, you know, I mentioned Maddox Sands and, and liking her chances, so she's a candidate. Vandeweghe is a candidate. Just give me a second here. Um, this is this is live picking, so so certainly you should bet a lot of money on this pick. There's there's a lot of thought that went into this one. Um, yeah. Uh, let's let's you know you've 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 taken some pretty big risks, so I'm going to go with Maddox Sands. 
All right. And I would also put in the conversation here Lauren Davis, also a little bit of a just a personal preference, but she did beat Radvanska, I believe, in, in Eastbourne. She's been climbing up the rankings. And it's great really to see her seated at a slam. I mean, I did not expect that as well as she'd been playing. Yeah. she. Watching her play, you it makes a lot more sense to see someone play playing like her ranked well outside the top 50. And it's nice to see someone just kind of scrapping her way to victory every week, have as much success as she has. So really happy about that. I would love to see her make a run. And she's in a pretty soft section of the draw. I mean, she could face Svetlana Kuznetsova in the third round, and of course you'd have to favor Kuznetsova in that match. But there's a possibility there. There's certainly no one in the first couple rounds who's likely to beat Lauren Davis. So she's a she's an outsider who could make some noise as well. So it's interesting to see some some Americans coming up in this conversation, as well as, of course, the, the, the great Annette Contevite, my pick. So, Carl... Have we picked um, a winner, though? I know we picked the finals. We did pick finals, and we did not pick winners. And, of course, my 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 go-with-the-heart choice is Simona Halep because I'm that predictable. If we go with the model, it's Venus Williams. And your pick between Pliskova and Kvitova is? I'll go with the heart, too, and say Kvitova. Not that my heart has any problems with Pliskova, but what an amazing comeback it would be if, if Petra won Wimbledon after just coming back at the French and after being gone for six months with... Uh, terrible injury to her playing hand yeah it, it would be truly outstanding and you know, it would it, it would be one of the benefits of this kind of weird open field we have right now with you know as interesting as it is it, it, it can get a little frustrating from week to week without any any players who are consistently playing well so if someone's going to take advantage of that then might as well be great stories and Kvitova would be pretty much the best one imaginable. Halep would be good too. I mean, I don't share your preference for her just generally, but she came so close at the French. She came so close to number one. I think she's she struggled enough to feel like she's she's earned that that final step. She definitely has. So, before we wrap things up, Carl, anything else you wanted to touch on this week? Any final thoughts? I'm just really disappointed that neither of us picked as our dark horses Diego Schwartzman or Paolo Lorenzi. I mean, they were just sitting right there in the draw staring at us, and you don't get more unexpected than those two. No, they they are definitely they definitely fall into the dark horse category. And Lorenzi, as we talked about last week, is actually seated, which is I mean, just the... the, the craziest most bizarre thing that Paolo Lorenzi has a seat at Wimbledon yeah and it, hey. it's it's a window into Jeff and his psyche for you listeners that when he was laying out the different sections and highlighting some of the other players lurking outside of the expected by seed round of 16s he mentioned both Schwartzman and Lorenzi and it, it wasn't so much because he thinks they're dangerous but because there aren't many opportunities to see them play on grass so take those opportunities when you can Yes, absolutely. So that is our Wimbledon preview. Um, thank you as always, Carl. Thanks, Jeff. You can always find Carl, everyone, at Carl Bialik on Twitter. You can find me at Tennis Abstract on Twitter. You can find the podcast at podcast.tennisabstract.com. You can see the, uh, the forecasts updating regularly at tennisabstract.com. Even if they do say crazy things like Venus Williams and Novak Djokovic as your favorites, um, that's everything we have to say hopefully we'll see you next week with another episode I'm, I'll be on the road so I'm not sure if we're going to be able to make that happen but we'll give it a shot I'll just sit with a chair, an empty chair if Jeff can't do it 
will you record the empty chair, Carl? Uh, we'll we'll mic it, yeah. Okay. Well, if it's if it's this chair, it might make some noise. It does seem to go up and down unexpectedly. So, I'll leave a mic here next to my chair, so Carl, you can record episode fifteen next week, even if I'm not available. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and enjoy 2017 edition of Wimbledon.